Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you're listening. You're listening to The Shift. I am your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This is episode 32 of The Shift. It's being recorded on April 5th, 2018. If you like what you're listening to, please think about becoming a patron of The Shift. That's patreon.com backslash The Shift. Uh, if you want to check out my news feed, go on Facebook to The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at McKenty and find out more and check out all my archives on my website, www.theshiftnow.com. My guest on the program today is election integrity expert Jonathan Simon, co-founder of the Election Defense Alliance and author of the book Code Red, Computerized Election Theft and the New American Century. Though Americans have recently been bombarded in the mainstream media about an existential threat that's posed to our democracy as a result of Russian meddling, few have had the temerity to focus a critical eye on the integrity of the internal election process right here in the United States. U.S. citizens often hear horror stories about corruption in places like Russia, Syria, and Iran, whose governments are often described as regimes and leaders characterized as dictators. The United States, on the other hand, is widely assumed to be a paragon of democracy whose election systems are beyond reproach. What if this is not the case? My guest Jonathan Simon has spent years researching the electoral process in the U.S. and has consistently discovered anomalies between pre-election polls, exit polls, and election night results. Those anomalies consistently point to a red shift, presenting a consistent tendency to favor Republicans over Democrats, and the consistency and magnitude of the shift goes well beyond any typical statistical margin of error. In other words, statistical evidence suggests voter fraud here in the U.S., not from some amorphous external threat, but rather from within the apparatus of the American election process itself. Stay tuned as Jonathan Simon presents the evidence, posits the source of the corruption, and provides solutions to this very important issue. Thank you for agreeing to be on the program, and thank you, Jonathan, for helping to make the shift. How are you doing today? Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me, and I, I'm doing great within the, the context of the times. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right. Uh, Hard times to be doing great, but uh, I am glad to be here. I know I keep I, I kept wanting to to email you and tell you that I was enjoying your book, and then I thought maybe that's the wrong those were the wrong words to use. It's like you start looking into this information, and it's it can be pretty disheartening, you know, to find out that what we all presume is true about this election system and this great democracy here in the United States uh, may very well not be true at all. So. Uh, do you just want to? Yeah, start I, I was going to email you back, and when you did say you enjoyed it, right. and, and let you know that you were the first person yeah. uh, to say they've enjoyed the book, and there was probably something wrong with you if you did. So, right. uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not it's not tremendously enjoyable, but that's that is after all the point. Um, you know, it's something that that the truth will set you free, but first it'll make you miserable, as somebody once said. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it really is shocking to get into this this issue in particular, because the election process in the U.S. is something that so many people just assume. And you even talk in your book about this level of denial that Americans are in when you even posit the notion that maybe there's something going on that's fraudulent with the election process. You know, people just can't believe it. It's easy to believe that it's happening somewhere else in the world. But here in the United States, surely our system is the, you know, one of the best ever. And we were the first democracy. We have this whole mythology around it. People just can't wrap their minds around some of these numbers that you, you know, you show straight up in your book, point straight up to election fraud, to corruption happening behind the scenes within the system itself, internally, not not externally motivated. 
Will you just describe a little bit about your background and then how you got into this and what, you know, what was that first big red flag for you that said, hey, wait a minute, you know, something smells like a fish here? Well, um, you know, I don't think anybody goes into this willingly. You kind of get sucked in at some point. And my, my background is I worked as a pollster. I'm an attorney. Uh, and I've had an, you know, a lifelong interest in, in politics, uh, sometimes more active than others. Uh, but I did work in Washington as a pollster. And I had a pretty good idea of how exit polls work. Uh, and I knew some of the people that were involved um, in making them work. Um, so after the 2000 election, I mean, I think it was pretty clear in the 2000 election that it was a kind of anything goes, you know, the, the ends justify the means, whatever it takes to get Bush into the White House. Um, all sorts of stunts were pulled uh, in Florida and at the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and uh, the late uh, Scalia coming up with, you know, jurisprudence that had never been seen before and using the 14th Amendment to somehow uh, end the counting and stuff. So it was a new era and it was an era in which, uh, you know, we were kind of on notice um, to, to beware uh, of what was going to what was going to go on. And then, of course, 9-11. Um, however, one feels about you know how, what the truth of 9/11 right. was. Uh, again, it was more it was more set up for uh, you know for for the for the watch out gene for for just saying wait a minute you know things are not what they necessarily seem uh, at face value. So going into 2002, uh, which was a mid-year election, which was important because it was immediately in the wake of 9/11, I had already set up to you know kind of monitor things and and. Uh, sort of see what see what was going on, uh, look at the exit polls. And uh, of course, there were no exit polls. They were pulled and they were pulled because they were so far off, um, again, in the, the, the red shift direction. They were so far off in the sense that the, 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 the vote counts came out to the right uh, of the exit polls, that they were pulled completely and were never made uh, public. Mm. So that was a big uh-oh moment. And from that point on, uh, you know, I was looking at this as a, a kind of crisis in the making. It was going to be a rolling coup um, if this if this process continued. And, uh, you know, elections had just become fully computerized with the Help America Vote Act, um, which ironically was, you know, based on the hanging Chad debacle and uh, was right. Uh, you know, was either engineered for that purpose, that debacle, or very much exploited. So now all of a sudden there was this tremendous rush, carrot and stick offered to the states um, to computerize uh, their elections fully uh, at the precinct level, at the central tabulator level. Um, and uh, this was this was a big, big, um, you know, alarm bell going off. So 2004, this was, uh, you know, the Bush-Kerry election, uh, I set out uh, I was sitting at my laptop and uh, actually it was a desktop at the time I was before my, my laptop days. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and what, what happened was, was very strange. Uh, I didn't know how to screen capture in those days. I'm, I'm something of a technoramus. And, um, I, so it takes a long time to print out, um, exit polls. And I started printing them out thinking, um, you know, the, the I'm not going to have enough time. And through some strange occurrence or glitch, uh, the unadjusted exit polls, the original exit polls, before they get sort of uh, forced or adjusted to be congruent with the vote counts, were left up um, on CNN. Uh, and I was able to actually print out hundreds of pages of these exit polls. Wow. And by four in the morning, I'd basically done a, a, 
back of the envelope calculation. I mean, it was pretty uh, crude and preliminary, but a pattern emerged. And the pattern emerged that not only was there this big red shift in which Bush was uh, of which he was the beneficiary uh, so that he was uh, doing far better in the vote counts than he was in the exit polls. Mm -hmm. But its distribution uh, was was very uh, was highly suspect because it was distributed very, very strongly to the battleground states. It wasn't happening um, in places that were not competitive or were not battlegrounds. It was happening in places like Ohio and Florida and uh, other battleground states. So there was a there was a sort of a double pattern. You had this pervasive redshift in one direction uh, outside the margins of error, and you had this concentration of it in the states that mattered. Um, which you know, if the, if the polling uh, methodology was off, you would expect it to be off pretty much uniformly mm -hmm. or ran around the country. So this was this was a big red flag, and by seven or eight in the morning, I was sitting there with this information. I had already created a spreadsheet and I'm looking at it and saying, my God, this election was stolen. Right. Um, and, <laughs> and I assumed, I guess in my innocence that, you know, there were probably, I don't know, a hundred thousand other people around the world because this was, you know, there, there was a, this was a big election. This was a referendum on the new American century on yeah. Bush and on, on the way we were dealing with, uh, you know, security and the world. Um, I just assumed that, you know, it both in this country and around the world, there would be literally a hundred thousand people at their computers doing exactly what I did. And there would be all this data floating around and it would somehow make it to the New York times. And there would be a banner headline that would say, you know, election in doubt, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It turned out that none of that was true. I was literally the only person in the world in possession of this unadjusted exit poll data before it became corrupted and made to be congruent with the vote counts. So, you know, that was a question of now, now what? You know, do I just go up on my roof and start screaming fraud or, or what? Right. Um, it, wound, it wound up making it to the internet through an or, uh, a website in New Zealand uh, called, called scoop.nz. Huh. Um, and from there, it got to people like Steve Freeman and other people that were, you know, had, had taken an interest. Um, and it became the basis for challenging uh, the uh, the results, uh, questioning the results, and hoping that there would be some serious investigation. Of course, and and Steve Freeman wrote a great book at the time. It was called "Was the uh, 2004 Presidential Election Stolen?" And the analysis in that book was, of course, far more sophisticated than anything I'd been able to do overnight. And we went at it. Uh, we refuted every rebuttal. We rebutted the rebuttals. Um, these this idea that there was, you know, this had to do with a response bias to the polls, and there was a reluctant Bush responder uh, phenomenon, which unfortunately I coined the name for, uh, I came to regret. Um, we, we showed that none of these uh, alternative explanations, benign explanations held water. Uh, and we were really left with something very, very close uh, to proof uh, that this election had been stolen. And then of course, other things came out about what happened to the votes from Ohio and that the Ohio servers had shut down, uh, you know, at late in the evening and the votes had been uh, ported over to um, the smart tech servers, which were located in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, and they were run by Mike Connell, the late Mike Connell, um, who was Carl Rove's IT guru. That was his, you know, his moniker. Um, and then they were ported back into the counties, and all of a sudden, Bush's totals, uh, you know, had changed. The the the, the, the 
lead that Kerry had had disappeared, 3% lead in Ohio, and been replaced by a 3% lead for Bush. He went on to win Ohio. He went on to win the presidency. All these things started coming out um, and more about the companies that were uh, doing the vote counting, et cetera. So he, Steve made a, a, a pretty airtight case in that book. It's some of the best forensics we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it was completely ignored and scoffed at. And, uh, you know, not only by the New York Times and, you know, the paper of record or the Washington Post, but by the progressive media as well. The nation, you know, or places where you would have expected more um, from the Democrats. You would have expected more at that time in our naivety mm-hmm. from the progressive media. None of the above. It was written off absolutely as conspiracy theory, wild eyed conspiracy theory. And that was that. Uh, but those of us who, you know, had, had pulled together the data and conducted the analysis and stuff. I mean, we knew we were working with some very, very serious evidence. We're almost never going to get proof, proof in quotes, Mm -hmm. P-R-O-O-F, because the system is designed to be concealed. We can't look at voter marked ballots. We can't look at memory cards. We can't look at code. This whole system runs behind a cyber curtain. I, I call it the partisan proprietary pitch dark of cyberspace. Um, and, you know, it's a phrase that kind of establishes itself, but that's exactly how we count our votes. And we use, you know, the analogy of if you if you had a vote, let's say, for union rep or something, and you're all sitting around in a hall and you filled out your ballots and you handed them to a guy and you happen to be dressed in a magician suit to sort of make the picture, um, goes behind a curtain, spends 15 minutes there, comes out, says so-and-so won, and by the way, I shredded the ballots and threw them in the trash compactor, um, but take my word for it, so-and-so won, um, you know, who would believe that, uh, especially if you were on the losing side? And um, and even the winning side really shouldn't believe that, shouldn't feel confident mm-hmm. uh, that they're legitimate. And that is exactly uh, an analogy. It's, it's almost exactly what we do with our 100-plus million votes uh, in this country. You might as well count them behind the curtain. So, you know, it's... It started a long time back. It started a long time before the Russians took an interest, uh, God knows. Right. Uh, and it's been going on year after year. And, you know, we, we've been performing forensic analyses and gathering data and trying to, you know, bring this to the attention uh, of the nation. And, and, uh, and, and by the nation, I mean of America um, and also the Nation magazine and anybody else who might listen. Um, <laughs> during this entire time. Now we got a little traction because of the, the Russians, which is, I mean, I'm sure we can get into, it's about as ironic as it gets. Right. Well, I mean, I was hoping, because I've been following this for a while. I mean, I remember that 2004 election. I actually, I always vote third party. I'm, uh, you know, I've been, in fact, 2004 was the first time I voted. I used to just refuse to vote. Like, I mean, starting in the mid nineties, when I was like in my early twenties, I was like, wait a minute, you know, I think there's something that stinks about this system. I felt like I just didn't want to participate. And 2004, I actually, I just cast a protest vote for Kerry. I mean, to me, the whole Iraq thing was so ridiculous that I actually, you know, voted for the first time in many years. And I voted for Kerry, which I, again, always vote third party at this point. Um, and everybody that I talked to, you know, just having your pulse on the street was doing the same thing. You know, they were they were blown away. The weapons of mass destruction thing had just happened. We went into Iraq. I think a lot of people kind of realized that that was all we were all snookered over that. Uh, 
And you could just feel it in the air that people were tired of the Bush administration and the stuff that they were pulling after 9-11. And when those vote results came back, something definitely smelled like a fish. And I started looking into it. Um, and I started to discover the same things that you're talking about. Like, my God, uh, you know, they're coding, they're, they're counting these machine votes behind some curtain. Nobody has any idea where these things are going. Anybody looks into it and they're going to figure it out. I mean, if you do the research as you've done, you'll find out that there's voter fraud here in the United States going on that we need to be looking into. And it's actually surprising to me that so many people are up in arms right now about this Russia thing, because if they're that upset about this democracy, then they should have been upset a long time ago and they should be upset about what's going on right here. So I hope that we can do a better job getting the word out uh, and really let people know that there is something that's not right. And, you know, people need to be addressing this It's far, far more devastating to the process than, you know, some Facebook trolls out of Russia. Uh, <laughs> um, so we'll go yeah, ahead. amen to that. I, I just want to say, you know, they're 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 uh, various ways to take over a country, uh, you know, and if it's a small country with a, a history of despotism and stuff, you just roll tanks down the main street and mm -hmm. you've done it. Um, it would be hard to take over America that way. We do have a long um, and storied history of uh, at least, you know, semi quasi democracy here. Uh, and it wouldn't be easy to take over by rolling tanks down Pennsylvania Avenue. So you go to plan B. You know, and plan B is to corrupt the electoral system. And if you're going to govern as abysmally, as oligarchically and plutocratically uh, as we've seen the right wing uh, do and, you know, over the past 15 or so years, I mean, since the Bush days, um, you're going to have to put a lot of thumbs on that scale. Um, because you're basically a minority governing a majority. And, you know, democracy is really not the rule in, in world governance. It's the exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times you have, uh, you know, minorities governing majorities. And, uh, you know, America holds itself out as the beacon of democracy. And we're the exception to that rule. And things are done right here. And it's partly because we are so identified uh, with that self-image. And at the same time, you know, our self-image has taken such a big hit since the Vietnam era and over the war. So we're even more clingy to what's left of it. Mm -hmm. And that that hubris and that that sense that it could never happen here because we are the beacon of democracy. That is the perfect cover to run this kind of coup, because, you know, you can steal the, the cupboard blind and put thumb after thumb on the scale. And by that, I mean things like gerrymandering, dark money, mm -hmm. voter suppression and electronic manipulation. And you put all those together, you can turn, you know, a, a majority into a minority just like that. And, uh, you know, the the track record is that's just what we've seen. So we now have a country that's tremendously fractured and also very dysfunctional in, in part because this it's the big lie. There's this idea that, you know, majority rules and it isn't what's mm. going on right now. Um, and it's very, very hard um, without rescuing our electoral system. Um, and bringing it into the light and have and restoring observable public observable vote counting. Uh, it's it's going to be very hard to restore our political system. So I just want to be very clear for my audience about exactly what it is that's going on. You talked about the Help America Vote Act in 2002. Now this 
financed essentially the proliferation of these electronic voting machines across the country. After that, we start to see these anomalies. Before, before this, it's my understanding that exit polls were pretty much foolproof that they, you know, they came out and they told us who won basically. And then you find out later on. Uh, and it was that, like you're talking about the 2002, 2004 elections, when all of a sudden these exit polls stopped working. And the interesting thing is, as you have kind of mentioned, they had just started like shifting the exit polls around to make them more correct instead of having, as you know, should have happened, a huge red flag come up and say, hey, wait a minute. You know, why did the exit polls after 100 years of exit polling that were, you know, 95 percent accurate? Why aren't they working anymore? This this was a huge red flag. Can you discuss the exit polling process and how, you, you know, how accurate it was? And then suddenly, miraculously, a decade plus ago, 15 years ago, they stopped working. OK, you know, a, a full on discussion of the exit exit poll process. I mean, we're talking several hours here. Sure. Um, so this is where I, this is where I plug my book and say that takes place in Code Red, mm-hmm. um, you know, in more detail. I will correct or challenge one thing that you said about that, which is this idea that the exit polls were always spot on. Mm-hmm. We don't really know that. And the reason we don't really know that is that nobody was really bothering to look at the, uh, you know, the the nitty gritty, the details of exit polls during those periods in the 80s, 70s and 80s and 90s. Exit polling started, I believe, in the 60s, mm-hmm. um, Warren Matofsky. And, uh, you know, the clue that we have about how accurate they were is that the networks had to uh, make a, a, an agreement, a gentleman's agreement to wait until the polls closed before they went public with any of the exit poll results. And the reason that that was happening was that even in some very, very close races, um, they were going public early and it was clearly uh, having a, a, a very negative impact on turnout. Sure. Because voters said, well, the, the, the election's over. Why should we go and uh, and vote? Um, so they can, so that's that's sort of a clue that these that these polls are very accurate. The reason we're not 100 percent sure is that we don't know whether, let's say, if we're looking at a election back in 1987, in 1988, let's say, or uh, 94, we don't know if what we're looking at when we look at the exit polls for those elections were the adjusted exit polls, in which case they'd be perfectly accurate because they were already adjusted mm-hmm. to match the vote counts. But we do know that as, that there was the, the only problem that we had with exit polling um, back in the day was that they would be able to call uh, uh, races very, very early before the polls had closed. Um, and that that suggests very strongly that the polling process was very accurate. It's also very accurate in other countries. Now, you know, when you're attacking, uh, you know, a, a process and you, you want to discredit the exit polls, um, which is, of course, been uh, what well, we are. Let me back up a little bit. I mean, we're saying, look, the electoral process is highly vulnerable to manipulation, and we have evidence that that vulnerability has been exploited. Okay, so that's sort of the attack. That's pawn to king four. And then the response, you know, from from the other side is, well, you you can't rely on exit polls. And so then the battle sort of becomes over exit polls. How how reliable are they? And we'll say, well, they're reliable in other countries. And they'll come turn back and say, yeah, well, they conduct them differently in other countries. Mm-hmm. 
you know, whether that's true or not remains to be seen. It, it <laughs> probably isn't true. But once you've made that point, well, exit polls here aren't, they aren't constructed to, they will say, um, to verify elections. They're just constructed to give us sort of academic information about various voter groups, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, we adjust them to congruence with the vote counts because that way we get the accurate information. And this is assuming the vote counts are gospel truth. And if we make the vote count, the exit polls and vote counts match, now we'll know what 18 to 30 year old men thought about the state of the economy or something, because mm -hmm. it would all be based on the accuracy of the vote count. So the battle becomes over the exit polls. Meanwhile, the fact that the vote counts themselves are unverified, unobservable, they, they are happening in the partisan proprietary pitch dark of cyberspace is kind of lost in that process because the battle shifts to, well, are these exit polls uh, valid or not? Sure. And, and the reality is we look at plenty of other things. We look at exit polls and pre-election polls. We look at hand counts. We look at comparisons between competitive elections and non-competitive elections, let's say in the same state. Um, we've even done polling where we ask the same set of respondents how they voted in a competitive versus a non-competitive election in their same district, let's say, or in their same county or in their same state. And no matter what we look, we look at, you know, uh, the count on optical scanners versus the count on touch screens where there is no uh, paper paper trail at all, um, therefore more vulnerable, more likely to be uh, manipulated. I mean, these are all kinds of um, factors. These are all these are all points of evidence, ways of approaching the problem that we have. And they're all indirect because, as I said earlier, we're given no direct access to any of the hard evidence. I mean, we could get a memory card if we could get voter mark paper ballots um, and pull them out of the op scans. That would be, of course, a lot better evidence. Mm -hmm. But we work with what we've got and we have some pretty good stuff. Um, we, we often look at what we call second order comparators. Take the 2016 election, um, the, if you can stand it, the, uh, <laughs> in, the, the primaries. Yeah, um, yeah. Where, oh. you know, and you, yeah, and you look at those primaries and the exit polls throughout um, the Republican primaries were basically spot on. The exit polls in the Democratic primaries all shifted, and I'll call it a red shift, in favor of Hillary Clinton, in other words, Bernie Sanders did better in the exit polls, worse in the vote counts in state after state after state after state, well outside the margin of error in a, a, a good number of states, eight or nine or 10 states, if I remember correctly. Mm. Um, it was really, really impressive how on the exit polls were on the Republican side and how off they were on the Democratic side. Now that led a lot of people to believe, well, Hillary Clinton's rigging the, rigging the election. Not very likely. Uh, they did, the Democratic National Committee did plenty to put thumbs on the scale on that election when mm -hmm. it came to registrations and stuff, but they do not have the access that Karl Rove and Roger Stone and the Republican operatives have to these vote um, counting outfits that are very colorfully named, things like Dominion Voting and Command Central um, that actually are the outfits that either produce the machines or and or program and distribute them. So, you know, because somebody is the beneficiary of a manipulation or a rig, 
doesn't necessarily mean that they are the perpetrator of it. It served the Republicans extremely well to have Hillary Clinton rather than Bernie Sanders be the Democratic nominee. But what, are, what the original point I was making is that this is what we call a second order comparison. We're not just comparing the exit polls to the votes. We're comparing one set of exit poll vote disparities with another set of exit poll vote disparities. And we're seeing a completely different and unexplained pattern. Uh -huh. We also looked at things like caucuses versus primaries. That was unbelievable. Those statistics are unbelievable, Jonathan. Yeah, I, you saw that in the 2016 edition of, of Code mm -hmm. Red. I mean, I, I had, it was um, uh, it came out in September of 2016, so I had covered uh, the primaries, and they're just they're just stunning, absolutely stunning. Um, you know, after the first two caucuses, which were in um, Iowa and Nevada, which were very, very tight races. Following that, Bernie Sanders went from being a, a, a you know, sort of a mosquito at the screen, a, a, a fly fly buzzing around Clinton's head to being a serious contender from basically from that point forward. Mm -hmm. From that point forward, there were 12 more caucuses. Bernie Sanders won every single one of them. He won them by a minimum margin of 11.7% by an average margin, I believe, of 36.4%. This was route after route after route. These, what distinguishes the caucuses was that these votes were counted in public. They were, they were basically hand counted. Right. That's the thing. Primaries were computer counted. And, you, you know, you have these distinctions. So it's not just, you know, the exit polls versus the vote counts. It's it's more subtle than that and a lot more damning than that. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is that, you know, you're talking, first of all, like getting the ultimate proof is very challenging because this information is proprietary. So you can't find out exactly what these the exit poll, the exit polling techniques are and the initial results because they're owned by these corporations. And the same is true for these voting machines. This is all proprietary, privately owned information, and they don't let anybody see. So all you can do are these statistical analyses. And then when you see these huge red flags, well, it should be like, okay, now we need to look further. And yet, as you say over and over again, even though we see, I mean, this caucus thing, this Democratic primary, 68% to 33% in favor of Bernie Sanders in caucus situations that are above board and transparently counted. I mean, that's a red flag, right? <laughs> and yet, as- Yeah, and it, and it is, it's, it's what we would call, you know, in, in the legal racket, we'd call it prima facie evidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's something you take in front of a grand jury and get an indictment, then you'd have to dig deeper, you know, to get the proof. And it should open the gates to an actual investigation of all this proprietary stuff. I'll give you one example, you know, with the cau caucuses, for instance, um, a, a, a potentially benign explanation for why Bernie Sanders won all the caucuses has been advanced. And that is that, um, you know, his, his the Bernie bros, there were a lot of pretty radical people, probably like you and me, mm -hmm. uh, that were uh, very intimidating to the Hillary delegates. And uh, that so the, the Hillary people tended to stay home in the caucuses. And that's why, you know, Bernie Sanders won them all. Now, that deserves to be considered. It deserves to be considered. But it is certainly not enough to just dismiss this entire pattern. Mm -hmm. This is where the jury would come in. This is where the trial would come in, that phase, where you look at these things and you look at the actual ballots and you look at the memory cards and you look at the code. Now, the DHS, our, our Department of Homeland Security, um, 
after the 2016 election and when there was this evidence of um, Russian meddling, um, assured us all, came out and uh, James Comey was one of the first to come out. And then, of course, Obama came out and then the DHS came out and said, well, you know, uh, we, we're, we're concerned about this Russian interference, but be assured uh, that uh, no vote counts were actually affected. No votes were actually affected by, right. by Russians, i.e. they didn't dig into our computers and, 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 and flip results and get their boy Trump elected, whatever. Right. Um, now, if you if you look a little further down the page, what they also tell you is we didn't find any evidence of manipulation, Russian manipulation, because we didn't look for any, because we made a command decision that we would not examine a single memory card, a single line of code, wow. a single voter marked ballot. So therefore, we, you know, one great way of not finding any evidence is not looking sure. for it. And generally, the reason given when you, you know, talk to on the inside about this off the record um, is we don't want to undermine voter confidence in the electoral process. Now, you know, just just take a second to digest that. You yeah. know, it's a noble goal. Yeah, and we, we really don't want to undermine voter confidence in the electoral process. But I think we do want to undermine voter confidence in a fraudulent electoral electoral process, a vulnerable electoral process, and a manifestly, uh, you know, uh, corruptible electoral process. So that they go out and change that electoral process and they bring to bear the pressures necessary to reform that electoral process and uh, you know restore observable public vote counting restore their own sovereignty mm -hmm. so it's such a you know yeah we don't want to undermine voter confidence we just want them to keep going like sheep and calf to the slaughter right. election after election casting their votes going home putting their feet up getting a you know, bowl of popcorn and watching the whole thing on TV, because that's what elections have become. They've become a media event like the Super Bowl or the Masters, you know, something that you can do very conveniently. You have these long voting periods Ah, just, you know, mail in your ballot, do whatever, vote on the Internet. You know, that's great. It's even easier. Just get out your little handheld device and cast your vote. Mm -hmm. In a lot of places, that's that's a growing, uh, you know, uh, way of voting. Um, and and then you not only have the convenience, but then you can go home and all the results are going to be in before you wash the dishes, before you go to bed. So you're going to be able to put your feet up and watch Mark Shields and E.J. Dion and Gergen and all these wonderful pundits, just like, you know, on the Super Bowl telecast where you get to watch Terry Bradshaw and, you know, and, 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 and Steve Young, you yeah. know, talk about what happened and talk about what the American electorate felt and, you know, use the exit polls to, to describe, you know, the new wave of the shocking wave of Tea Party resistance or whatever right. it is that they decide is the headline. And you get to sit there, you know, on your couch and, and absorb it all and still get to bed by 10 o'clock. And of course, you couldn't do this. You couldn't do this if we counted the votes by hand or even if we had serious auditing of the votes, serious audits, good, good uh, risk limiting audits or audits with teeth. You couldn't do this by 10 o'clock. It would take too long. It might take till one in the morning mm -hmm. or it might take till the next day, God forbid. And so there wouldn't be a decision 2018 to go home and, and, and sit down with and have fun. I mean, this is, I can understand. I mean, we're, we're an entertainment 
based culture where everything's about, you know, enjoyment and entertainment and, 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 and athletic, you know, sports and, and whatnot. And, and that's, that's how we run. And I can certainly understand the seductions of ease and convenience of voting and the entertainment part of watching it all. But if it's all corrupted, right. You know, what is it that, what is it that we're actually, you know, watching, we're watching a horror movie, right. we're watching rolling coup, take over this country, change the fate of this country, certainly <laughs> plenty of states in this country, the country as a whole, and the planet, mm -hmm. the things that are being done now. I mean, trade, borders, walls, the EPA, the environment, the Paris Accords. I mean, this is all, these are the stakes. So you have to go and you have to ask yourself, what what's what's more important here what what are we you know what are we playing with mm -hmm. and we are playing with the fate of this world so that we can go home and sit on the couch and watch it and be entertained no you know this if we're really the beacon of democracy if we're going to be a beacon of democracy it is really time to recognize and step up and recognize what is at stake and recognize the duties that we have as citizens of this democracy that go with the rights that we get. We, we're, everybody wants rights. Nobody really wants duties. Our jury duty is a pain in the poop, right? You know, I've already served 12 days of jury duty in, you know, in my career. Yeah. And, um, you know, 12 days, I mean, it's not, it's, some people go on vacation for 17 days. It's not that big a deal, right? Uh, but, but it seems like a lot, 12 days. Well, to count our votes by hand, we're talking four hours per voter lifetime is what it would take, four lousy hours. Now, if we can't assume that responsibility, if we can't demand that responsibility, how much democracy do we really deserve? Now, unfortunately, we're taking the planet and we're taking the future with us in the process because we're allowing oligarchs and plutocrats and people with a very, very different idea of what the world should be from the majority of this country to have power mm -hmm. and to have rule. And it's culminated in the age of Trump. It doesn't get a lot uglier than this, except that it probably could get uglier. Right. I mean, we'll see where they choose to take it from here, right? Unless we actually take the power back. Let's get into a little bit about these voting machines. What's going on with the voting machines? When they came on the scene, what changed? What are the companies behind them? Um, what makes them so suspect, you know? Well, for one thing, um, <clears throat> Voting machines, uh, whether they're touchscreen machines or optical scanners, they're both computers. And they're computers with a lot of code in them. And if you take a typical optical scanner where you mark your ballot, feed in your ballot, and say goodbye to your ballot, um, there are anywhere from about 500,000 to 700,000 lines of code running that optical scanner reading that ballot, recording the votes. That's a lot of code. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you could insert, interpolate in three lines, offset the zero counters by, by inserting those three lines. So that let's say, let's talk uh, candidate A and candidate B. So it's, you know, it's not Trump and Clinton or whatever, candidate A and, a and candidate B, and you're an operative seeking to uh, have candidate A be elected, you set candidate A's zero counter to plus 100, 
you set candidate B zero counter to minus 100. So the first vote that comes in for candidate A is 101. And the first vote that comes in for candidate B is minus 99. Now, in a computer, there is no zero. There is no such thing as a zero in a computer. And when you're counting ballots by hand, zero would be the empty table in front of you. And then you'd put one ballot down, and that would be one. You don't have that in a computer. It's all floating point. As a matter of fact, computers now, these computers that count the votes, are fractionalized. You can they can break votes into fractions. Wow, that's a whole other issue, and it's a whole other vector yeah. for uh, stealing elections. But I'm I'm sticking with the most simple. And there's a whole there's a whole uh, you know quiver of arrows here. The most simple, you just offset the zero counters. Well, at the end of the day, the vote totals add up because you've added a hundred and you've subtracted a hundred. So. If 500 people came in and voted for A and 500 people came in and voted for B, 1,000 total votes, A would have 600 votes. That op scan would say A's got 600 and it would send that number off to the central tabulators. B would have 400 votes and it would send off 400. On the machine, it would say that 1,000 votes had been cast. The election administrator looks at that, looks at the poll books, assuming they're paper poll books. They could also be electronic <laughs> poll books, another vector for how you swipe elections. Mm -hmm. um, but looks at the poll books, say, well, a thousand people came in and voted. The machine had recorded a thousand votes. All good. Stamp it, certify it. It's a good election. And you've just shifted a net of 20 percent of the vote. Um, it's, you know, it's really that easy. It's, 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 it's been said. And, you know, they, they've, had uh, like a DEFCON last year. They, they took these machines and they, um, you know, let the computer people have at it and they hacked into every single one of them. They found a way of altering the count on every single one. Wow. Uh, and they've said that basically, you know, high school, maybe even a junior high school, uh, you know, uh, level uh, computer geek or, or rigger um, could, uh, could, could pull off uh, many, many of these of simple rigs, and then they're more complex ones. They're the ones where you shift the votes to a to a uh, a set of servers, let's say from Ohio to Tennessee, for instance, um, and and you can actually rig in real time, send them back in. Um, the idea that these machines are not connected to the internet, uh, this is this is very very misleading. First of all, some of the machines are directly connected to the internet. Other ones have internet modems that can be activated from the parking lot, and virtually all of them are programmed with memory cards that sat on computers that were connected to the internet. Right. So. There's ways of, there, there are many, many ways of manipulating these machines. Now, in the cases of op scans, optical scanners, in theory, you have the paper ballots available for a recount. Now, when was the last time we actually saw a full recount of a contested election? And if, and if anybody says Jill Stein, uh-uh. <laughs> what they did in, in the Jill Stein elections was come in the Trump campaign and the Republicans, and they basically came in and they thwarted Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, all three recounts, um, all in different ways, all with different you know legal strategies. But the bottom line was that none of those states was recounted. In Wisconsin, the counties were given a choice. Do you want to recount by hand or do you want to recount by sticking them back into the same scanners that counted them the first time? Surprise, surprise, you're going to come up with the same result. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, recounts... The, the ballots exist, but citizens can't get at them. Candidates trying to recount them. If you recall, Jill Stein raised $7 million. The, the, the fees 
that were charged by the states were jacked up enormously over what previous fees had been with no justification whatsoever. Hmm. So you can make it financially prohibitive for a candidate to recount, especially at that stage in their campaign. They've just spent all their money. That's the whole point. You want to spend your money on the election. You don't have a lot left over for a recount. Kerry, John Kerry, set aside supposedly $15 million, of which a thousand is, was mine. Um, right. <laughs> Because there was so much suspicion that 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 election would be uh, corrupted. And he put aside a fund of $15 million for recounts and legal challenges and whatnot. He conceded the next morning after the election. He never used that 15 million. I I don't know what he used it for. Maybe to buy a yacht. I don't know. Maybe to to pay for, you know, second mortgage, kids' education. But it sure as hell wasn't on – the, for the purpose that it had been collected for. So candidates may elect not to use it. They may not have the money to use it. They may be barred by various legal. There are states where it is forbidden to hand count. A state like Florida, you cannot hand count the ballots. And there are several other states like that. Um, again, I, I go back to my first point. This is a system that is designed to be concealed. And when you try to look into it, you find all sorts of curtains drawn and all sorts of blockades. We are, you know, it, it to shift a little bit and, and just so it doesn't get forgotten, all this um, anxiety and hand-wringing about the Russians at this point has been the only traction that we've had in 15 years. I mean, it's been the only time that anybody has seemingly taken it seriously that we kind of have to get into the nuts and bolts and see what's going on with this system. But what is truly, you know, you pull your hair out, um, this, the, the absolute illogic of being so concerned about these hackers coming from the outside who have to, if you call it an electoral electoral house, our electoral house, they have to break into a window. So we're looking for signs of, you know, forcible break in and we're worried about fortifying the window and completely ignoring the people who have keys to the front door. And those are these voting vendors. And you go and you look at Diebold Premier, which is no longer in the voting business, although their machines are still out there, um, ESNS, Dominion, Skydal, Hard InterCivic. Hard InterCivic was partly owned by the Romney family. ESNS, Chuck Hagel, the Republican senator, had had uh, control, you know, big control of that. Right. Um, Diebold, you had Wally O'Dell, who said he was going to deliver the electoral votes of Ohio to George Bush. He was a big Bush fundraiser. I mean, you go, you trace the pedigree back, uh, and you come back to the Yurosevichs, the, the Bob and Todd Yurosevich, these characters who have all have these right wing affiliations, very often right wing Christianist or right wing, very, very radical right wing affiliations. And they somehow, you know, decided to go out and set up or take over voting machine companies. You know, there's not a lot of money to be made in voting machines. Right. So really, what was the motive there? And so that you have these things, you, you have something like Kennesaw State uh, University in Georgia, the election center that basically takes care of programming and maintaining all the machines uh, for, for the state of Georgia. And it and just is answerable to no one 
except perhaps the Secretary of State of Georgia, who happens to be a far right wing Republican. So, I mean, you know, their hooks are into this system in so many places mm. and in so many ways. Um, and these companies, I'm not saying the company board sits down and says, ah, you know, how are we going to rig this election? But if you look at what you know, the, the the hiring practices of these companies and who actually works for them. And you ask yourself the question, these are all people with inside access, people who handle memory cards or work at the computers that program the, the memory cards that go into these machines that count our votes. And you say, you know, what would it take to buy one, two, three, four, just a, a small doesn't take a big broad-based conspiracy. Mm-hmm. This is a centralized system. You know, there are just very few companies involved in the system. We're always saying, well, it's hard to rig because it's so decentralized. BS. It's very centralized. There aren't very many vendors. And you you suborn attack at one of those vendors. I mean, what would it take? You offer somebody a million dollars or you, you know, threaten them or you do whatever. It, this is, you know, you may say this is the stuff of fiction. This is the stuff of novels. And in fact, novels have been written about this. There's some good right. ones out. <laughs> but it's it's also the way the world works. We've seen it in so many places. We've seen it in Volkswagen. We've seen it in athletics, the Tour de France. We've seen it in the Olympics. We saw the Russians were banned. We've seen it in our own athletic events we, we, at every level. I mean, not just professional, but all the way down to the high school level with cheating and taking steroids. We've seen it in academia. Um, We've seen it in the world of finance and Bernie Madoff and so many others, you know, where nobody is looking and the stakes are really high. What are we seeing? Mm -hmm. We're seeing human nature come to the fore. It ain't pretty. In this case, if we want to protect against all that, There's one very, very basic way, and it's not more levels of encryption so that somebody else can get the key to that encryption or be paid off to to penetrate that. No, it's not more and more levels of technology. It's public observable vote counting, period. And if we're not willing to take the time, if we're not willing to put out the effort, if we're not willing to spend what turns out to be a very, very modest amount of money to make that happen, and, you know, especially in the context of what we're spending in Iraq and Afghanistan to bring democracy to those those places. I mean, literally, right. for, for a week of Iraq or, and Afghanistan, we could have hand counting in this country for a generation. And that's assuming people wouldn't volunteer. And there's evidence out there. We've run some polls on this that people would volunteer. They'd be happy to volunteer. So we could have this and we could do it in a way that really, really solves the problem. It doesn't doesn't just kick it down the road. Um, it doesn't just give the, you know, an incentive, you know, you know how it works with with hackers and, and, and security experts, the security experts come up with some encryption and the hackers break it and you come up with more encryption, the hackers break. Well, all the more so if you're working from the inside. I mean, if we're going to set set about buttoning up our electoral system against the Russians now, so we're going to put in, you know, they just, um, appropriated about $380 million, which is you know really a drop in the bucket, so that we can have secure elections. But let's say that were enough to you know keep the Russians out. What have we done about the insiders? What have we done about the domestic operatives mm-hmm. who have, if anything, more of an incentive to take over this country than the Russians do, and who are 
interested in it long before the Russians were. And the evidence we have of manipulation goes well back before the Russians took an interest. So we're just ignoring them in all the efforts that we're making now to have some paper ballots and maybe a little more encryption and whatnot, it still leaves it wide open to the insiders. And, you know, we're approaching an election where, I mean, elections, you know, there's a certain point at which it doesn't pass the smell test uh, when, you, when you, you know, pull off a rig, but we call it the stuffed nose smell test hmm. because you can get away with a lot. And the, kind, the way this country is split and really always has been split is pretty close um, you know, maybe it should be two countries. Maybe there should be, you know, I call it Camerata and Walmartia. You know, we, have, we get the West Coast secedes and New England secedes, annexes with Canada, you know, and then you're left with the red states. I mean, maybe we're going in that direction. Maybe elections can't even help us at this point. Um, but as long as we're the United States of America and these 50 states, then these elections are close. And with gerrymandering and voter suppression and all the other thumbs on the scale, um, you know, it's it, pretty easy to maintain uh, power, mm -hmm. uh, even if you're a minority, and uh, manage to pass the smell test. We're going into these elections. The predictions about the House are, you know, well, it could go this way. It could go that way. It all depends on all these various factors. Very few seats are actually in play because of the advantages of incumbency and gerrymandering. So it really does come down to that. You know, who, who how many thumbs can you put on the scale? And the most damaging thumb, I would think, is the most covert, the one that nobody can even see. I mean, if somebody does voter suppression on you, at least you know it. You get to the polls and they say, oh, sorry, you're not registered. Or, you know, we, 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 uh, we're going to send out uh, uh, robocalls that say the election is Wednesday and we're going to send it to communities of color. Uh, so that they don't come out on Tuesday because they think the election's Wednesday. Well, at some point, they're going to realize what's been pulled on them. But nobody's going to be able to see what goes on inside those machines. And to take that kind of risk, whether it was favoring the left or favoring the right or favoring the center or favoring him, that doesn't matter. To take that kind of risk with something this important is is really, it, it is certifiably insane. And the question then becomes, like, as you said, spreading the word, getting people to the point where they make this a priority, because there's so much out there where people are willing to march for gun control and people are willing to march for the environment and people are all these all these issues. And I, I salute them, uh, the Parkland students. I really salute them. But they're all DOA mm -hmm. if we have restoration of honest elections. And so this should be a part of every one of their campaigns, the people really need to come together and say, we're the ones that are being screwed. It's not Hillary Clinton. It's not the Democrats. It's the public because it's our sovereignty that is being corrupted and disrespected and, 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 and over, you know, overwhelmed. Um, and so it's up to us. And how are we going to make this happen? Because the legislators, if you're a legislator, you're an administrator, You've been elected by the system <laughs> per force. You're in office because you won an election. Mm -hmm. How great is their incentive to significantly reform the electoral system? This is why we're not seeing anything from the Democrats, from the Republicans, really nothing. And so it's got to come from the public. And that means the public finding its source of power. 
And what I would say is, you know, we are voters, but we're three other things. We're taxpayers, we're workers, and we're consumers. All of us as voters, we all consume, we have virtually all of us, most of us work, and most of us pay taxes. And we certainly all consume, we're all consumers. And this is a capitalist country and money matters. Money is the thing in this country, it's what makes it run. You know, this, this goes up or down by 2% and everybody is freaking out. In that kind of a system, I, I know that the, the corporate poobahs, the plutocrats, the oligarchs, they go to bed every night and they kneel by the side of their bed and they go into prayer position and they say, God, please don't let the people discover what kind of power they have. Please don't let them discover what they can do to us. And, you know, and, it, and it, it, there's evidence in some places that it that it has been discovered, a place like North Carolina, where they passed that execrable bathroom bill and mm-hmm. the public started saying, hey, we're boycotting. We're not buying these products. And the corporation said, we're pulling out. And they started putting pressure on the politicians that they basically owned to say, we got to change this. Now, did we get a perfect bill? No, but that bill got repealed. And this is the kind of thing, if you were able to organize this, and in a state like Wisconsin, let's say, where where the election system is so corrupted, the voters came together. And they don't even have to march. They don't even have to take a day off to do this. Just came together and said, we're not buying a single goddamn thing that we don't need. No flat screen TVs, no handheld devices, none of these, none of these luxuries, none of these cars and all this kind of stuff. We'll make do with what we have. Yeah, we'll buy baby formula, we'll buy tuna fish, we'll whatever. But we're not participating in the normal way of U.S. consumers until you, as legislators, draft the legislation that says we're going to have either hand counted paper ballots or serious, uniform, toothy audits that actually work. One or the other, your choice, you get it done, then we'll start buying again. And those corporations, you know, the bottom line changes by 1% and they start panicking. How much power would we have exercising our economic power mm-hmm. to just simply not buy? We don't even have to get to not paying taxes. We don't even have to get to not working. General strikes like they've been so effective in, you know, in Europe and other places. We can just get together and not buy. If we can find a way of organizing that, if the Parkland students, you know, get together and they first started with a lot of protests and marches, and then they realized we got to get people to vote. We got to get people to pledge to vote a certain way. The 2018 elections, these are key. If they understood that those elections desperately, desperately need to be protected, and they took that kind of energy and enthusiasm and savvy And they brought it to bear on organizing something like this and said, look, we've got to have gun control, yes, but we've also got to restore what's at the core of the problem in this country, which is the electoral system. And we're going to try to start organizing people to do that and to make this pledge, not just to vote a certain way, but to not with basically withhold themselves as consumers. And we could all stand to do with not everybody gets to buy, I shouldn't put it that way because not everybody gets to buy luxuries. For some people in this country, it's baby formula and that's it. But for the many, many, many who can afford 
the luxuries, the kind of more than a dent, the kind of mortal blow that we could strike to this economy by getting together and using that power and just call it extortion, call it blackmail, call it whatever you want. But because we can't exercise the power of the vote in an electoral system that's been corrupted. So you have to go to something else. And this is, to me, the thing that we really need to go to. Now, I've never been accused of being an organizer. I don't, I'm not sure I could organize a picnic, mm-hmm. a family picnic. But there are people who can. And there are people who know how to work social media. And if the nexus can be made between people like me who do this analysis and who come up with, you know, a, 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 a description and, and, and a presentation of what's going on in our electoral process and our vote counting process, nexus between those people and the people who can organize and make things happen and call for these, um, and we call it boycotts or just withdrawal of consumerism, then we, we might have, and we would have, I shouldn't say we might have, we would have the power. And I think it's the only way that we're going to get the power to change this right at the core of our system, restore our sovereignty, and go on our merry way. There's a lot of damage that's been done, but it's all reparable if we could restore our democracy. Well, let's get a little bit into the mainstream media, because why isn't the media covering this? This is, the, I think, the reason why it's so difficult to organize. I mean, if it's all if, if an issue is all over the media, then, hey, people are looking to organize. But when it's not, you know, it's it, it becomes so grassroots and so difficult to get the message out there. And I just like we had just to mention this, because I want you to maybe address this a little bit, too. We had a congressional study into this. John Conyers, the Conyers report. In 2006, when that came out, 2007, about that 2004 election that really kind of started it all in terms of the, the corruption being so wide open that it was really noticeable. Uh, and, the, and so this congressional study comes out and says, hey, it looks like, you know, Ohio was rigged and it was probably widespread rigging all over the country. The media mentions it like once. And then everybody's quiet about it again and nothing changes. And it's just it's amazing that the mainstream media won't cover this and won't give it, you know, the the necessary attention that it deserves, which might then spark more of a mass movement, because I totally agree with you. The people do have the power. It's just a matter of waking up, seeing that this is important enough and, and you know, being spurred to action by having the knowledge of the, the extent of the problem. Short answer is we don't know. I mean, people have different theories about, you know, what's inspiring uh, the the media to act the way it is. Uh, We do know, you know, we have heard directly from certain journalists who were courageous enough to take this on um, that will remain nameless just because these were in confidence. But uh, a high level, high level journalists working for The Times, working for the networks, um, that they were told to shut it down. Uh, and this was after the 2004 election, and they haven't been heard from since. Mm-hmm. Um, and told by their superiors. Now, who's telling their superiors? I don't know. And where it's coming from, I don't know. Um, it's grievous. Uh, I will say that the closer you get to the sort of pyramid of power, and that's whether as a actual ruler, you know, representative, somebody who's in government, or the people who are doing the covering of the people who are in government, the, you know, the fourth estate, the press, um, 
the more you are um, tied to the legitimacy of that whole system. I mean, you're part of this this functioning or dysfunctioning, if you want. Yeah. But this, you know, <laughs> this very very powerful system, and um, you know, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or a journalist, um, you you kind of get your props from the from the position you have. Um, sure. You know, and 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 the exalted nature of that position and the compensations that come with it and whatnot. So there would be a, you know, a basic generic disincentive to do too much rocking of that particular boat. Um, beyond that, I do think that there is a certain reluctance, you know, certainly if you went to the Times or the Post or the New Yorker or the Atlantic or whatever, um, to be marginalized, to, um, to, you know, risk putting something out there that looks uh, inflammatory and can't be completely proved or substantiated. I mean, they're very, very conscientious. I mean, you, you see what's happening now where you make one, you know, tiny little error and Trump is out there screaming fake news and mm -hmm. wants to shut you down and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Um, so there is a certain amount of, of, of cautiousness and we have not, and I've, I've gone back and forth with Dean Paquette, the editor of the, of the Times. We have a, a reasonably, uh, um, you know, good channel of communication. Um, and, you know, when I brought up stuff about, about the Ossoff race, about Georgia 6th, and where, where the forensics were just like off the charts. I mean, there were, there were numbers there that, you know, we, we looked at and this just, this just, is not compatible <laughs> yeah. with, with, a, with an honest, you know, with an interpretation that this election was honest. Um, and again, I go into that in Code Red. It, it's, a, it's a lot of detail for now, but uh, just the, the numbers were screaming. Um, and he, you know, he and his reporter basically said, well, you, you know, you haven't presented conclusive evidence. And, you know, my response to that is, well, isn't that your job? You know, I mean, it's like we, we don't really have access here. The guys, you know, with, with, if there's going to be any access um, to go and investigate it, um, they may not have access either. Again, you know, if Department of Homeland Security couldn't get it any memory cards or wouldn't, either couldn't or wouldn't get it memory cards, voter mark paper ballots, um, any of the code or whatever, maybe the Times can't either. And in the absence of that, uh, this is, in a sense, conspiracy theory. I mean, it's an accusation. It's an allegation. It's 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 um, it's very loaded. It, it's very. It has. Uh, it's almost impossible to disguise it as being nonpartisan because all of the shift has been in one direction mm -hmm. for the last fifteen years. Um, so you know, we don't come at it necessarily as partisans, but but the evidence is is so is so one sided. Um, so I mean, they're they're. they're there are many factors, and I don't really want to excuse them because um, they have, in many ways, been the villains of this piece because they will not even give it a fair hearing. They won't even put it out there and say, well, certain people are um, uh, alleging this or they've gathered the evidence. They, they won't. Um, they, they, um, if they comment on it at all, it's almost always to just uh, mock and dismiss us as conspiracy theorists. Um, you know, so so I don't I don't, I don't want to give them a pass uh, by any means, 
But at the same time, I don't know exactly what's in play. You know, maybe there is a deep state going on here. Maybe mm-hmm. there is, um, you know, word from the Illuminati or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, that's not the way my mind works. Um, but, you know, what I do know is, is that they have g- grossly, grossly underattended to this and underreported. Um, and they don't seem to have, even now, I mean, they, they're able to talk about the Russians because they're outsiders and maybe it fits the neocon agenda yeah. or the neoliberal agenda or the neo something agenda. Right. But 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 they can't talk about, you know, Karl Rove. They can't talk about Roger Stone. They, I mean, Roger Stone came right out and I have it in code red. I don't know if you saw it because it was at, in the 2016 edition. It was buried in a footnote because mm. it had just come out and he rode in the hill. He basically said, folks, you know, you, you have every reason to 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 fear the rigging of the elections. My God, there have been five elections, at least that I know of, that have yeah. been rigged in Wisconsin alone, right. you know, for Walker and, and Reince Priebus and everything. And he came right out, he wrote it, it's in writing. I mean, he can't, he can't, I have a screen capture of it. It was in the Hill. And I mean, this is an insider operative who, I don't know if he was on Truth Serum or he, you know, drank a little too many, uh, you know, cocktails or whatever, but he, he yeah. basically came right out, out of the mouths of babes. And he said this, and. You know, it, there's there, there, there's there's no follow up. And as you say, that it lands with a thud um, each time there's an election that appears to be, you know, manipulated. There's a certain flurry of activity. The media damps it down to basically nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this concern about the Russians, but nothing about um, insiders. It's, 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 it's very Alice in Wonderland. It really is Alice in Wonderland. And it does, it makes you wonder, you know, is this, are these the, uh, you know, the, the, the wise people who think that the public is really the enemy, you know, are these the Platonists or these, the, the, the Straussians, if you want to go in that, you know, in that direction Mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, who believe in in a fundamentally an autocracy, but or oligarchy, um, or aristocracy, but who realize that you know in America you've got to disguise it as democracy. So the public is really stupid. The public is really dangerous. And you know, it's not that hard an argument to make. I mean, when you got half the country watching the Kardashians and the other half watching the NFL or NASCAR or right. MMA or whatever it is, and just you know, with not a clue about what's going on in the world, maybe these people shouldn't be allowed to vote. Maybe they shouldn't be making decisions about anything. You can see how elitists would, would might come to the conclusion um, that, uh, you know, maybe they know best and maybe the public really shouldn't have a voice. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's permeated, you know, some of the journalistic profession. I don't know. I mean, this has been a, this has been a, you know, a long, long running, uh, uh, you know, political debate and philosophical debate. Um, we, you know, we may just be experiencing one, you know, uh, one episode of it here. Um, I, you know, Dostoevsky wrote in the Grand Inquisitor. I mean, he had this, this Grand Inquisitor who just said, look, it's, you know, it's out of mercy for the people that I'm not giving them freedom, that I'm not giving them <laughs> right. choice. You, Jesus Christ, are giving them choice and freedom and you you can't do anything crueler because they can't handle it. Well, you know, you saw that there. We might be seeing something like that now that, geez, if the public actually had the vote and they actually had their way, God knows what would happen to the world. Now, 
I'm not of that camp. You know, I'm a, mm-hmm. more of the Winston Churchill camp that basically says democracy is the worst of all political systems, except for all the others. Um, you know, at some point, you, you've got to go with the public and with the public sovereignty, because those people who think that they know better, they've almost always been proven wrong. And disasters have almost always befallen mm-hmm. uh, when they take the reins of power, shut the people out. Um, so, you know, I'm fundamentally a Democrat, small d, Democrat. And if if you believe in democracy, you, you have to believe in the electoral process, and you have to believe in an electoral process that operates as an accurate and honest translator of the public will into electoral results and leadership and national direction and policy. Um, and that is what I believe has been, you know, attacked um, and, and mortally attacked. Um, and so, you know, to me that, that, that is, that's, that's job one. That's our first priority is putting that in place. Then we can see what, what befalls and, and what kind of country this really is, you know, give us one stinking, observably publicly counted election Mm -hmm. and let's see what America really is. Right. Yeah. And I, I wanted to mention also, uh, you talked about Mike Connell initially. Well, I mean, I guess first what I want to say is that it's so easy to to pigeonhole this conversation into that world, that realm of conspiracy theory, because we're not allowed to see this proprietary information that these corporations that own these voting machines can keep all of this stuff hidden. So all we can ever do is speculate. Having said that, the information that you've discussed today, the statistics that you've compiled are enough to put up a bunch of red flags. And those red flags are enough to warrant more investigation. I mean, I think everyone would agree to that. And that's where, you know, you look at the mainstream media, they want to just pigeonhole it. They want to call it conspiracy theory. They want to blow it off. Well, that in and of itself is suspicious. Like, why can't we see this stuff? You know, this is a democracy. If I want this information about this you know, democratic process, then why can't I see it? And when you start to see these these doors that are closed and this information that's kept hidden, I mean, that is also a red flag. And that's where I think, you know, trying to call this conspiracy theory or blowing this off is a huge mistake. Um, you know, you might be wrong. And, and I, you know, you, you, you're actually quite humble in your analysis. You don't know for sure what's going on. But again, I think the evidence is overwhelming that more investigation is necessary. And when you're prevented from doing that, that that is in itself a red flag. I wanted to go, and just for my audience, the the fact that whoever is in charge of all of this, whoever's doing this, is willing to go to some extreme lengths. You mentioned Mike Connell earlier. Uh, just allow people uh, maybe tell his story where he was this IT guru. He was helping Karl Rove in some capacity. Uh, and then there was this lawsuit and suddenly, you, you know, Mike Connell befalls this terrible accident right before he was supposed to testify. You also in the book mention a reporter, I can't recall his name, but the reporter that was really starting to look into it, who also uh, ended up passing away under mysterious circumstances. So will you elucidate onto that just yeah. so people understand, you know, this is this is where this is what's happening, <laughs> right? Yeah, Doug, you, you have two stories conflated there. The reporter was Raymond Lemmy, mm-hmm. and he was actually looking into the Clint Curtis um, issue, where Clint Curtis had come out and said that uh, he was he was a, a programmer and he had been commissioned 
by the Speaker of the House, Republican Speaker of the House of Florida, to come up with a program that would rig the reverse the vote totals in South Florida. Um, and Clint Curtis is still alive, and he actually passed a, a lie detector test, two lie detector tests, I think, by the uh, chief, excuse me, uh, retired chief polygraph officer for Florida. Um, and uh, but the reporter that was covering it, Raymond Lemmy, died under very specific, uh, suspicious circumstances. Uh, he apparently had bludgeoned and stabbed himself to death, which is not a particularly right. uh, popular method of suicide. Um, the Mike Connell was 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 uh, more on the radar, I think, uh, than the than the Raymond Lemmy. Uh, and there have been others, by the way. There, I, I go through a timeline. Um, of developments in, in Code Red, and uh, among them are these various deaths, the death of so, so-and-so, death of so-and-so, uh, and there are quite a, quite a few bodies littering this trail. Right. Uh, it could be, you know, I mean, people die, so it could be coincidence, uh, you know, and I'm, I, I don't know, but th- the, the Mike Connell one was, was, was very, very suspicious because, uh, yes, in, 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 the 2004 election, as we you know discussed, Ohio was a, a, a huge uh, issue, and there was a lawsuit brought in Ohio to try to dig into what had happened uh, and how the state servers had gone down and the votes had been sent over uh, to Mike Connell's backup servers. Conveniently, um, set up backup servers before the election. Um, in a sense, you know, anticipating that the state servers would go down and then mm-hmm. the state servers were under the control of uh, J. Kenneth Blackwell, who was the secretary of state of Ohio and also the honorary chairman of the Bush campaign in Ohio. Right. Um, a little conflict of interest there um, was, uh, you know, the, the, the servers uh, mystically went down and the, the vote totals got sent over to, uh, you know, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Mike Connell had this smart tech operation, and then they processed the vote. I, you know, massaged the vote, processed it, counted it, whatever they did with the vote there. Uh, there was a blackout, basically, and they took control, and then they sent them back into the county tabulators, and all of a sudden, Bush was up by 3% instead of down by 3%. So there was a lawsuit to try to get to the bottom of this, and Mike Connell was subpoenaed. They actually had a reasonably... Um, courageous judge and uh you know the judge that sort of saw what was what was what was what and uh he was subpoenaed and he gave uh a deposition a closed door deposition uh and this was in early december i believe of 2008 and um because you know the wheels of justice grind small and it took four years for this lawsuit, three three or four years for the lawsuit to get to that point, to get to the discovery point. So he gave this deposition and it was it was fought all the way by Rove and his lawyers and they were there the whole way and Mike Connell was basically, you know, sweating up a storm um, trying to, um, you know, fancy dance around these questions. He was told by the judge that he would be expected back to complete his testimony either by deposition or perhaps even in open court um, at the start of the new year. And I, at the time, emailed one of my colleagues, Mark Crispin Miller, one of my election integrity colleagues, and I said, mm-hmm. poor Mike Connell, the guy will never see Christmas. Um, and on December 19th, um, wow. his plane went down. Yeah. And it went down under very suspicious circumstances, and the investigation was even more suspicious 
um, the area was cordoned off, not by the, the ordinary, like the Federal Transportation Security Bureau, you know, anything like that. It was the FBI got right in there, just as they had for the Paul Wellstone uh, crash. Right. Um, came in, took over the scene. He had, Mike Connell had a BlackBerry, which had stored on it um, hundreds of thousands, actually, of email correspondence, text and email correspondence with um, Carl Rove, because they were, were, he was Carl Rove's um, IT guru and basically his uh, leader of his um, electronic operations. Mm-hmm. He had set up the, uh, the email system for the U.S. House. Amazing, right? U.S. U.S. Right. Wonder where Carl Rove got his power from. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, a few house emails would help, right? Hmm. Okay, so he. Uh, but this, you know, I'm taking off my conspiracy theorist hat. <laughs> yeah. um, I um, and and Mike 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 Connell had this BlackBerry, and it was uh, mysteriously never found at the, at the crash site. But his wife came afterwards and toured the crash site, and she found the earpiece to the BlackBerry. Mm-hmm. Black, that was intact. The BlackBerry was gone. Right. So, all you know, again, the the, uh, the, the there are a lot of dots to connect here. Uh, it was extremely timely um, death from the standpoint of Rove um, and anybody who would have been in on the theft of Ohio and the presidency in 2004. Um, proof, no, you know, but again, you, you, you get enough dots after a while. You, you get a, I call it the, the surrealist version, the Surratt version of Monks is the scream because they got dot after dot after dot and they form a picture, an overall picture. Um, this is where, you know, some investigation by the, by the media would, would come in handy or, or by the government or whatever. Mm-hmm. And where they obviously, they obviously shut this down. Um, so, you know, there, there, there are a lot of angles to this. I, I am coming out with a 2018 edition of Code Red. It's greatly expanded because they've provided a lot of new material in the last two years. <laughs> right. uh, oh, I mean, man. one example uh, of that material is the Ossoff race, where, again, there was a lawsuit into, you know, what the hell happened here? Can we get to the bottom of this? Three days after that lawsuit was filed, the server on which the programming for that election was stored uh, by Kennesaw State Election Center was they literally brought in an industrial magnet and wiped it clean, completely wiped clean. And when they found the backup server, when the case got transferred to federal court and they found the backup server, they wiped that clean as well. Oops. Yeah. No evidence. Yeah. So, you know, some of the things that have happened recently are very, very reminiscent. And this includes the race in Alabama, which I really don't want to go into, but it's in code red and it's not what people think. Yeah. Uh, so I'll leave that out there as a teaser for when the book comes out. Um, there's a lot of new material that you know kind of um, resonates with what was going on back in 2005, 2004, 2008, 2002, um, and so I've, I've pulled all that together, and you know the book is a little a little fatter now, um, and it should be out in uh, about a month. I'm working on it, you know, at this at this time. Um, it's a little difficult because, in a way, this is a rolling story. <laughs> and, sure. You know, every time I think I'm finished, something something new happens. Right. Um, I will, you know, I will at 
at some point cut the thread and, and put it out there. And then I have a blog, um, which is uh, www.coderedd. 2014 2014.com slash blog mm-hmm. where I'm going to try to, you know, keep up with the, with the day to day of this. Um, but I think, you know, the, there, there is a distinction I want to make and it, and it, and it's a real, it's a real dilemma for election integrity people, myself included, of course. And that is that if we just focus on the vulnerability of the equipment. Um, and we basically say, look at this, you know, uh, they, they've, they've, they've run all these hacks and they've shown that the Russians can get in and we're worried about all these, all these uh, vulnerabilities in the equipment. So why don't we, uh, you know, change it, we, uh, replace it now um, with hand counting, with serious, with paper, uh, in every election, paper ballots, voter mark paper ballots, mm-hmm. um, and audits or hand counted voter mark paper ballots. Um, the response tends to be, eh, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You talk about all these vulnerabilities, but there's no real evidence that any elections have actually been corrupted. So, you know, let's do a pilot study and maybe look at audits starting in 2026 or something like that. The way the way you'd normally handle an issue like, um, you know, I don't know, uh, the the. The, some of the environmental issues, you know, is, is a certain dam safe and, you know, we'll do, a, we'll do a study and we'll find out and then maybe 10 years down the road we'll fix it. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of, you know, shrug of the shoulders. If, on the other hand, we say, whoa, wait a minute, you know, we have all this evidence, everything from, you know, Mike Connell's plane going down to all these numbers and all these analyses and all and this pervasive red shift and servers getting erased just when they were, you know, critical for evidence. And you start drawing this picture with all these things that have happened. Mm-hmm. Then the door really slams and breaks your nose, because then you're talking about the illegitimacy of the U.S. government and of all these state governments and of all these office holders. That's basically what you're saying. You're saying the whole thing is, is, is a fraud and it's illegitimate. And then nobody wants to hear nothing from you. Right. So we're in this kind of place where if you don't bring that in, there's kind of a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, what are we so worried about? Let's study it for 10 years. And if you do bring that stuff in, it's like, what, 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 we didn't hear you. You know, we're not, we're not listening. Yeah. Because so it's so destabilizing, you know? So who knows in in the midst of that, what, where I've come down with this is pretty much, for the most part, to most audiences, I want to talk about the vulnerabilities because you can make a case on that alone. And if you put behind that enough tenacity and fierceness and insistence that we not take this insane risk any further anymore, that should be enough. Yeah. Because and it's not enough if you're going to lobby Washington. There, there are many people in our movement who are very um, – committed to this idea that we can just go to Washington and go to these various state houses and petition the Lord with prayer and lobby. And, you know, to them, I say two things. You know, one is you don't have 
you're not big pharma, you're not big oil, you're not big finance, you don't have the kind of money to, to, to get those results, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two is you can talk about democracy and fairness and all this stuff till you're blue in the face. We've seen what that gets from these legislators and administrators, basically nothing. Right. It's service at best. So we don't want to go with that vulnerability argument to Capitol Hill and say, please, we want to go with that argument to the people and have them say, whoa, and we're not going to accept this as an electoral system. We're going to change this. First of all, we're going to demand that this be changed. And, you know, then it would be enough. Then we don't have to go back into the messy past because, yeah, that's absolutely filthy, polluted water. But it is under the bridge. We're mm. not going to you know, remove Bush from the presidency. We're not going to remove Trump from the presidency, for that matter. We're not going to change all these. I mean, the impact has been much stronger on the down ballot races than it has been on the presidency. All these state legislatures and all these House elections. I mean, right. these are exit polled. There's no scrutiny. They are the easiest absolutely the easiest to manipulate. And, um, you know, so it's basically the entire infrastructure of American politics. We're looking at this perspective. I make this point very strongly in Code Red. We're looking at this prospectively. Don't fear us because we're not talking about rewriting history. We're talking about having one honest election, one, one election that we can actually trust, not that we're told to trust or reassured about but that we can actually depend on a public observable vote counting system. The Dutch and the Norwegians, they took one whiff of our 2016 election. The Dutch decided in one weekend, in one weekend, we're going to count our national 2017 national election by hand in public. It was just that quick. Wow. Yeah. And that's what we really need to do. Now, granted, the ballot is longer in the U.S. The burden is heavier. We, we put a man on the moon. We, you know, we invade foreign countries. We do all sorts of things that have a lot higher burden than sitting down on election night, counting the votes, waiting possibly till one in the morning or the next morning for the results. I mean, this is not asking too much. And, uh, you know, we can do it. It's just a question of whether we find the collective will to do it. Well, this is what's so strange about this issue is that what you're talking about and the solutions that you're giving are just common sense uh, in any healthy democracy. This is how democracy works. Like you're saying, sorry if it takes a few extra hours, but you know this is what it's called to participate in a healthy democracy and ensure that uh, these elections aren't being fraudulently corrupted in some way. And instead, what we're seeing is all this stuff is happening behind closed doors. So we just really can't even say what's going on. And whoever's committing the, the fraud, I mean, if it is just the Republicans, uh, I have a tendency to believe that it goes a little bit deeper than that into some kind of a deep state or military industrial complex, something or other, just because... I mean, you know, in part, I did want to mention this in part because of what happened to Ron Paul, for example. I mean, Ron Paul also on the Republican, you know, in the Republican side of things. I mean, I think there's you probably agree plenty of evidence that that primary was uh, was fraudulent as well in favor of Romney. I, I've seen I've seen some statistics that really pointed in that direction. Yeah. So. Yeah, Doug, primaries are even even lower hanging fruit mm-hmm. uh, than general elections. I mean, they're, you know, virtually never exit polled. Um, and there are, um, 
except for the, you know, some of the presidential primaries are exit poll, but for all these other offices, they're not. Uh, they generally happen in obscurity with a much smaller electorate, much easier to explain why so-and-so won. And they're the way they, that you set the field. And, you know, if you look at what's happened to the Republican Party, it's been a, you know, a, a, a purge, basically a 10 a year purge mm. of, of anybody that, you know, that was 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 moderate um, and, and being replaced by by very far right, very militaristic, very radical um, uh, uh, office holders and candidates. Um, so, you know, I think this happens you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be deep state. It doesn't necessarily have to be a vast conspiracy. Mm -hmm. um, it really could be a Karl Rove operation or a Roger Stone operation or, you know, whatever. Um, it doesn't take much uh, to rig elections. But the ones that are turning a blind eye to it, you know, the complicit, there could be a big, big uh, contingency of, of, of complicit, of complicity and people um, who for a variety of reasons, you know, I mean, it, when, when Hitler came to power, there were many institutions, of course, and especially in the early days uh, before 1934 that could have put a stop to it. And each of them had its own reason between the church and the financiers and the industrialists and the, the, the anti-communists and these are, you know, they all had their own reason for thinking, okay, you know, th th we, can, we can manage this. We, we, he's a lunatic, but we're going to ride, ride the wave and then we'll be able to control him and whatnot. And they were all dead wrong. And most of them wound up, you know, in, in great trouble, <laughs> you know, um, uh, once, once he took control. But I mean, there, it, it is a, a situation where there might be a lot of parochial interests there, all of which align with the kind of electoral results we're seeing. Um, and uh, as I said, you know, in many ways, the public becomes the enemy. This is the information age. Um, and the idea from the standpoint of the surveillance state, that's a whole nother program, mm -hmm, <laughs> right? but, you know, is to basically know everything about you and me and make sure we know as little as possible about them. And that was executed all through the Obama I mean, he was deaf to, to whistleblowers. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of expansion of surveillance, obviously under Bush, but it was continued under Obama, very much under Trump. I mean, this is where the battle is being fought. What can be seen? What cannot be seen? Um, and obviously, votes are a big part of that. You know, we're not allowed to look. And that's part of a much greater battle that has to do with knowledge and information. Knowledge and information are power. And this is really a battle for power. Politics has always been a battle for power. Um, but, you know, it's gone through different phases. It's gone through phases where that battle has been sort of fought fairly and, and straight up. And it's gone through phases where there have basically been, it's based, based on lies and coups and uh, covert operations and whatnot. And, you know, America doesn't have clean hands in that regard, obviously, around, mm. around 
world, so I'm not sure why we should necessarily expect it to have clean hands at home. Um, we do know something's going on. You know, it's like something's happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. It's just, you know, yeah, <laughs> those, definitely. those songs were very prescient from the 60s, yeah. uh, and we're living it out. I'm not sure most of us thought we'd wind up in the age of Trump, of all things, <laughs> uh, but it is bringing things, you know, the, the only thing you can say for it is it's, it's, it's generating a passionate uh, opposition and it's kind of bringing things to a head. But that opposition and that resistance is going to have to be smart about, you know, because most of them are just going naively, uh, even the Parkland students saying, well, the 2018 elections, we're going to take over, you know, we're, we'll just use the electoral process. Uh, and the electoral process we have um, <laughs> is likely to turn out to be very uh, disappointing to those ambitions. Right. Well, Jonathan, it's uh, probably about time to wrap it up. I think we've covered most of the bases here, and I definitely urge everyone to read Code Red. This information is extremely important. This issue is uh, you know, more dire than most people realize. I think that wall of denial that we've discussed, people just don't want to look at it. They want to believe that we live in a free country and America is this paragon of democracy. Uh, to have to confront that uh, it's not an easy thing for people to do, but if we don't do that because of the work of people like you, you know, continuing to put this information into the in front of people and in their faces, and hopefully the media will start to pick up on this because, uh, you know, as it stands right now, it, I don't even think we can call this place a democracy. I mean, this is a this is a kind of a, a cultural mythos, and people need to recognize that the situation is much much worse. Uh, then it appears on its face, and we're going to have to set aside some of our preconceptions, you know, that cognitive dissonance that we want. We want that to be true and, and realize that these facts are stating otherwise. So um, as we wrap it up, do you want to give everybody your blog again and maybe a few closing statements? Yes. Unfortunately, Code Red is, a, is available primarily on Amazon, um, yeah, right. <laughs> which <laughs> I know won't make it necessarily popular for, for everybody. Um, <laughs> there may be other ways of getting a hold of it, but, uh, you know, Amazon, I, it is self-published. Uh, that's a whole nother story, getting things published that are this uh, destabilizing, if you want to call it that, or, 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 or you know, um, verboten. Mm -hmm. um, but it is available on Amazon and the new edition will be out probably starting in May. I mean, the, the current edition, the 2016 edition, obviously covers the last 15 years or so up through 2016. Um, and it's, you know, you've read it. It's It's got a lot of good stuff in it. But I think that the new edition probably is worth waiting for, probably be out in about a month. Mm -hmm. um, this really is about uh, as we said, information, and that begins with becoming informed. So whether it's via reading Code Red or going out and finding, uh, you know, other other sources of information about this, um, it's it's very it's very much incumbent on uh, people, you know, who are citizens and want to be good citizens um, to to take this on and to spend the the time and effort to become informed, uh, and then make up your you know make up your own mind about what's going on here. Um, that's, that's the way we work. That's the way democracy works. Uh, my blog is www, or my website is www.coderead, C-O-D-E-R-E-D, 2014.com. Um, and the blog is, is, uh, part of that website. Um, and, you know, I, I, again, I, I'm very, I very much welcome people who want to engage in dialogue about this. Um, should I give my email address? I mean, I, I, am sure. generally okay with that. Okay. Um, you know, if you, anybody wants to talk to me directly, 
and is and is still hanging with us after an hour and forty five minutes. Yeah, um, <laughs> which maybe you'll cut it a little bit. Um, is uh, verified vote two zero zero four at aol.com, uh, and that's v e r i f i e d verified v o t e two zero zero four at aol.com, and you know I'm happy to discuss this with anybody who wants to take the time. Great. Thanks, Jonathan. And just in conclusion, I'd like to remind everyone, uh, I'm your host, Doug McKenty. This has been The Shift. If you like what you're hearing, you can help me out by becoming a patron at patreon.com backslash The Shift. Join my news feed on Facebook at The Shift with Doug McKenty. Uh, Join the conversation on Twitter at McKenty, And my website is www.theshiftnow.com where you can find other information about the show and check out all my archives there as well. So uh, thanks everybody for listening and thank you, Jonathan, so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your work. It's super important as hopefully people can tell by, you know, by listening to this interview Uh, and we'll, we'll keep doing what we can do to chip away at that wall of denial and try to wake people up as to just exactly how important this is. Thanks Doug for, for having me on. And I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks. Likewise. Take care.